0: Dressed, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when
0: of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, dress listeners, you've heard us talking about it now for two plus years. (laughs) (laughs) We finally went to Paris and now we are back to tell you all about the dressed fashion history tour of Paris. Yes, 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 and we had so much
1: fun that apparently, Cass, I will admit, apparently I just can't let the fun go because I still
0: have not unpacked one of my suitcases. (laughs) And as you know, my suitcase never even arrived, so we'll talk maybe (laughs) a little bit about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we were actually there, like, ultimately for over two weeks, and Cassidy's suitcase
0: never came (laughs) the entire time. (gasps) And as everyone kept pointing out to me, it's like, oh, there's worse places to have to shop to refill your suitcase or your wardrobe. So (laughs) I did a little bit of shopping, although not as much as I would have hoped because I'm very particular with the things I purchase. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, we had such a blast. I mean, we keep talking about this, but it's just insane. I think it's been over three years since our travel agent um, extraordinaire, Laura Hart, reached out to us and said, hey you know, I'm starting this new business like Minds Travel. And I think it'd be really cool if you went to, you know, some destination with your listeners and you and I were like, that is an excellent idea. Yes. So hopefully we will continue to do this.
1: And Paris was just our first stop. So um I guess kind of what we want to do today is just speak a little bit about the trip, where we went, what we saw,
0: some of our favorite parts. And yeah, I mean, Where do we even start? (laughs) Well, it's the fashion capital of the world, right? I mean, I do want to preface this episode with saying that we did travel responsibly. Obviously, these are very unprecedented times. We've actually canceled the trip twice because of, you know, everything that's been happening in the world with COVID. Um, We did a lot of research before we even remotely considered going to France. We all had to have our vaccinations, we had to get COVID tested before we even set foot on the airplane. And then actually in France, which I think is maybe an interesting way to start this episode, April, France has this very specific health pass system or pass sanitaire in which you cannot even go into museums, restaurants, etc. without proving that you had a negative COVID test in the past 72 hours or your vaccination, proof of vaccine. And then it actually changed while we were there. We couldn't even use our vaccination cards. We just had to get the COVID testing. So it's still a little bit of a volatile situation. The very first day we had lunch in Paris, we actually were a block away from thousands of people protesting the health pass. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was it was quite funny because all of a sudden there were this huge group of probably like 40 riot police in full riot gear. On the block. <laughs> Running down, we're sitting outside on the sidewalk and they're like running behind me, like a foot behind me. And one of them just yells, bon (laughs) appétit.
0: But as um, we've talked about too, it's very, very much part of the French DNA to protest, right? It's kind of part and parcel to their performance of democracy there. So it was super interesting um, to witness and to be in France at this time. But we still had quite an amazing time, did we not? Yes, we certainly did did
1: so perhaps we should just kind of jump into what it is that we were up to So our guests joined us in the evening um, when everyone first arrived. We had a lovely little cocktail reception that was put on by our hotel, which was about as Parisian and as charming as you can get. And we were actually in the Mamantre Pigalle neighborhood, and we were staying at this little place called Maison Nabi. And the breakfast spread alone that they put on every morning was pretty incredible.
0: I don't eat croissants. I literally do not eat croissants. Like, I would never put that as my favorite breakfast food or anything, but I ate a croissant every flipping morning because what else are you supposed to do in France? Their pastries are so, so good. Yeah, we had that lovely cocktail hour. We got to meet everybody who's been with us. Many of them had been with us since the very first time we announced that we were doing this tour. So it was just a treat to meet some of you, our listeners in person for the first time. I mean, as we've talked about so many times, I am in my upstairs bedroom in New Mexico. And April, you are?
1: (laughs) In my apartment in Brooklyn. Clementine is snoring on the chair next to me while we're recording. So this is our usual working method. And like Cass and I pretty much talk almost every single day about like various things pertaining to the show or whatnot, but we kind of record in chunks, so like once a week. So this this is our method. So we got to see all of you in person,
0: IRL, and in France. So that was really cool for us. It was super cool. And then the next morning, we woke up and started the dress tour of Paris, which the very first stop was on the historic shopping street of Paris, once the most luxurious shopping street in the world, an international destination of the glitterati of society, the Rue de la Paix. So we're not going to go into too much detail because we actually are going to Offer this as an episode coming up, I believe, next week. So we can take you mm-hmm. through the Rue de la Paix tour. So if you're ever in France and you want to go do this tour by yourself, you can take our <laughs> episode with you. We had so much fun doing that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, when we say Rue de la Paix, let me just throw out a couple names here in terms of like the fashion history points that we're touching on. Like we went to the House of Worth. We went to the House of Pacan. We went to Elsa Scaparelli's original location and then just around the corner to the location that she moved to in the 1930s where Scaparelli and the Scaparelli Couture House are still located today. And just a little side note, we would like to thank you everyone at Scaparelli for welcoming Cass and I um, a few days before everyone arrived for a little private tour. So thank you all so much.
0: Yeah, that was really, really cool. We got to see pieces from the latest Haute Couture collection, which in my personal opinion has been one of the best. It was so, so cool to see these pieces in person and then many pieces of the ready-to-wear line. And then also, you know, like they have this whole section you walk by and it's Perfume bottles and, um, you know, Scaparelli's historic perfume bottles and just like it's so cool to be there and to imagine what it would have been like from the 1930s onward. Yes, and we'll talk about that in the Gruta LePay tour episode coming up as well.
1: Yes. So, do we want to talk a little bit about some of the, the destinations, perhaps, like? One in particular that was originally located on the Rue de la Paix. And then we took a little side jaunt to actually visit their archive because their shop is no longer on the Rue de la Paix. But, Cast, we want to talk a little bit about Duvelois.
0: Yeah, so we actually did this the first week. We did something different the second week, but it was so gracious of Devellois. They actually invited us to not only their storefront, but into their archive to see the you know pieces and their collection from this very historic fan-making shop. So it's actually the oldest fan-maker in Paris in existence to this day. The company originated, and we'll talk about this on the Rue de la Paix tour again, um, but Jean-Pierre Vallois, um, created this fan shop in 1827. And in 2010, Michel Mignon, Eloise Gilles, and Raphael Lebaude relaunched this historic house. And it was actually Eloise who invited us. Thank you so much to your incredible team, which included Johanna, who gave us this archive tour. April, I'm dying to know, because you and I went separately, what were some of your favorite fans that Johanna shared with us?
1: Oh, I mean, I don't even know because it was just like one thing after another that she was pulling out of their drawers for us to see. One of the things that I really, really loved is actually one of their signature shapes. One of their signature shapes is a balloon shape. So it's a little bit fuller and a little bit plumper than some other fan shapes. And the examples that she pulled out had exquisitely hand-painted little renderings of cat and dog faces pets on the fans and those have become such a signature of the house that they actually offer kind of modern day twists on them in their contemporary line as well but the ones that really like were jaw-dropping to me were a lot of their feather fans um, including one which was a flamingo feather fan and yes the feathers were white and pink another one were swan feathers. And then uh, we we also had um, a kind of like within the group that I was with, we I did a little bit of a discussion about, you know, the use of feathers in fashion and the fashion trade. And of course, we have already done an episode on that called Murderous Millinery about um, the use of feathers in millinery or hats. But that also at this time applied to fans as well. And then Johanna was telling us a little bit about how certain feathers, when they can't be proven where they came from, even if they're feathers that were harvested far, far, far in the past that de Roy still has in their possession, still has in their archive, they can't use them in their contemporary products because of all these laws and ethical regulations surrounding the use of feathers in the fans that they still make today. And one of the really cool things was she pulled out this box uh, from a separate shelf, and inside the box were all these thousands of tiny, beautiful blue feathers that apparently were taken from blue jays. But even though they have all these thousands of feathers in their possession, it is illegal for them to use them in their products. But but they still keep them there because it is part of the history of the house.
0: Yeah, and absolutely on the history of fan making. Something that was super interesting was there was a fan that had like hundreds of feathers on it. And she told us that the bird that supplied these feathers only had three each. So how many birds were killed just to create this one fan?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So if you haven't listened to our murderous episode, definitely check it out. But of course, this is from the history of the house. Today, they're still creating wonderful fans. And we, of course, went into their shop. Something that I wanted to say real quick before we talk about their contemporary line is that, they created in the 19th century and early 20th century these animal-painted fans. So apparently, you could commission a fan of your favorite pet. And what's so lovely about these hand-painted fans is they did the front and the back of the pet. So like the front, the (laughs) face of the pet, and then the back of their head, which I just found so incredibly charming and lovely. And they've done a version of this in their contemporary line. They have hamsters, I think a dog. I want to say it's a Shibu Inu, but I could be wrong. And then a cat, so a fan. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of the dress listeners who went shopping got got those fans because they were super fun. I got a fan from their contemporary line that has the eyes cut out so that you can yes. kind of hold it. And you can hide behind the fan but still see out, essentially. Yes. <laughs> I also got a peekaboo
1: fan, and mine is a different style than yours. Mine is all black, um, but it has little dot cutouts that are kind of like in this minimalistic geometric design. So you can, again, see through the fan if you're behind it but people
0: can't necessarily see you. Yeah, and this lovely gentleman who was running their storefront, he'd only been there, I think, a month or two, but he gave us the most wonderful tour of their contemporary line, which, I mean, fan making is an art form. These fans are still being made by hand and they ha- they basically range from what we would call a ready-to-wear fan all the way up to haute couture level. Like, there was fans in there that were like thousands of dollars and they were works mm-hmm. of art. It was absolutely incredible.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So we did stop there on the first week of our tour because we actually did two separate trips. So there were two groups, what week one and week two. And unfortunately, because it was August and many Parisians go away en vacance, or on vacation in August, uh, we weren't able to visit the second week. But what we did do on the second week was equally cool.
0: Yeah, we actually went to the oldest haberdashery in Paris, which who knew? So cool. We went to a super cool store called Ultramod. It actually has two different storefronts. And it originally opened as a hat shop in 1832. And then it expanded to become a haberdashery, which is selling small sewing notions in 1920s. So we got to check out both of those shops. Uh, April, I think you bought some grosgrain ribbon. They had like vintage ribbon and more contemporary ribbon. It was just really cool experience.
1: Yeah, and they were showing us some like really super rare hat-making materials as well that were entirely, they look like textiles. They, they really, really look like, like I mean, I guess technically it is textiles, but but what they were made of straw, and you couldn't tell, they looked like they were made of linen or something. But, um, you know, some of their back stock they have all these really rare and precious items that can be used in sewing or hat-making that date back, you know, decades and decades and decades. So, and it's massive. If you need buttons... That is your one-stop shopping
0: place, just say. <laughs> yeah, we had so much fun in there for sure. And then actually, this is all on the same day, we actually went to the Elia Foundation to see an exhibition. April, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I don't think we've ever really spoken about Azadine Alaya too much on the show, and we will rectify we that. We have I'm to sure, rectify that <laughs> at, at some point. <laughs> yeah. But Azadine Alaya, basically, he was born in Tunisia in 1935. He studied art and sculpture growing up, and it was a very kind of fun story about him studying art. Um, one of his mother's friends was a huge Fascistista, and she was a little bit eccentric. So in order to help him get into art school earlier than he was actually technically supposed to because there was an age limit. She helped him by lying about his age for him on his application form. But, you know, he really was this prodigy, essentially. So while he was studying art and sculpture, he was also working for um, a dressmaker who specialized in making couture copies. So that is ultimately how he ended up becoming a fashion designer. And and throughout his work, you can really see that that art and sculpture training, how it overlaps into his work. He moved to Paris in the 1950s. Um, Initially, he was hired for a very brief moment as a tailor for Christian Dior. But then he went on to work under fashion designers Guy LaRoche and Thierry Moogler. And it was really Moogler who, even though he was working for him, he was like, look, you need to do your own thing. You are so good and you have such this incredibly unique point of view and your skill. You need to launch your own line. So he really did that in the late 1970s and just grew and grew and grew in prominence, um, you know, all across the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, his his work is amazing. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2017. But you can go and check out his foundation at the Foundation Alaya in Paris, which is located in the Marais. And it's in this incredibly beautiful building where it has like this really long kind of like atrium space. And the exhibition that we saw actually was a pairing of garments and then their photographic representation that had been shot as fashion photographs by his longtime collaborator, Peter Lindbergh. So the show is just absolutely beautiful. And then they do these shows. It's There's not like a permanent exhibition or installation per se. There's always like a, a new, a fresh show that will be coming in having to do with Elia's work.
0: Yeah. So it was really cool. And the exhibition design was amazing because when you enter the space, all you see are Peter's photographs. And then as you come around each bay, each separate bay, you see the garment or a similar garment that was in the photograph. In real life and on a mannequin. I mean, Azzedine Alaia is very famous for creating clothing for Glamazons. I mean, all of these women are six foot tall plus models. I mean, it's absolutely incredible to see these pieces in real life. And he was such a master of construction and technique. So it's very, um, maybe at the surface or first glance, like very simple designs, but so sophisticated in execution and fit. Um, My favorite part was going upstairs because it was basically dedicated to his relationship with Tina Turner. So you saw some of these Mm -hmm. incredibly iconic Tina Turner garments on display. And then another thing that I loved about that museum was their flippin' fashion book gift shop. It was amazing.
1: Oh, yes. And containing books by So many of our fellow fashion historian friends and people that have already been on Dressed, I was, like, going around taking pictures of everyone's books in the bookstore and (laughs) texting them to them. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, it's fashion-centric, that bookshop. Um, And, and side note, we all bought Azzedine Aliyah face masks at the bookshop, and they're the coolest construction. They're hand-washable. They are that kind of, like, breathable mesh fabric that a lot of face masks are made out of, but... In true Alaya form, they are little works of art on your face because they're very sculptural. They're 3D.
0: Yeah, very, very cool. And then, just kidding, that was the end of our day. (laughs) We were very (laughs) tired. Then the next day, we went to another exhibition. We actually went to two exhibitions. Wednesday was like our museum exhibition day. So we went to uh, Van Cleef and Arpels, which was really cool because it was in a very like untraditional exhibition space, right, for jewelry. It was at Paris's Natural History Museum, which was really, really cool.
1: Yeah. And so we learned a little bit about the history of Van Cleef and Arpels. We're not exactly sure. Forever, I've been saying Arpels, but the English tour guide version calls it ARPL. So I'm not sure if that is British English or if it's a slight differentiation, but just throwing that out there. But yeah, the, the show was really, really cool because in addition to Van Cleef's mind-boggling <laughs> pieces of jewelry, because it was in the Natural History Museum, it talked about the Gemstones and had examples of them in their rough state, like sometimes still embedded in the rock. And then examples of those particular gemstones, like emeralds or mother of pearl or opals or whatever, like halfway through processing. And then also the finished product. And we got to learn a lot about Van Cleef's, you know, signature things that distinguish their jewelry from other companies. We learned about the mystery set, which is this way of setting the jewels so that you don't see any of the prongs or attachment. Essentially, it's almost like these little tracks that the jewels slide into. So when they're trying to cover a surface, like all the emeralds will appear to be exactly next to each other, nothing separating them, which of course takes a ton of time and planning. And those teeny tiny stones, when they're doing that, have to be the exact right shape shape to kind of like fit in that track. We also got to see just, you know, some of their other signature pieces like ballerinas and dance is a theme throughout their work. We got to see some of those pieces. We got to see some of their iconic zipper necklaces. It
0: was really, really, really breathtaking. Did you have a favorite piece, Cass? Um, I mean, I had so many favorite pieces. There's like an incredible, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, how do they ensure this show? Because there's yeah. like millions and millions, if not billions of dollars worth of jewelry in there. That was so, so incredible. The exhibition is actually called Gems. It's at the French National Museum of Natural History. Oh, I do have a favorite piece, actually. One of my favorite pieces was also one of the smallest. It was actually this bead that's over 90,000 years old. And the fact that this little shell had been perforated is proof that people have been adorning their bodies for ninety thousand years, so basically, that's just proving that to dress and adorn the body is one of our most innate and natural human instincts. So, you know, just a little pitch for our show, but <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the way we dress our bodies matters. So, <laughs> well, and then after that, um,
1: after we everyone had a nice, lovely lunch break, we head on over to the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, where we had a plethora of fashion-related things to look at. Again, another jewelry exhibition, which I really, really loved. Um, This one was not necessarily about a single designer or brand, but it was this overarching survey of the history of jewelry starting in the Middle Ages. Yes, you heard me right. So it starts with jewelry from the Middle Ages, and it goes all the way around to contemporary designers. And of course, some of my favorite pieces and just... Pieces at the Musée des Arctiques Artif in general were the Art Nouveau pieces.
0: Oh, yeah. There was like a crown, an Art Nouveau crown. And you're in, you know, those beautiful sinuous brooches. And hair combs. I know. And I might be mistaken, but I think that's a permanent exhibition. I could be Mm -hmm. wrong. So that was really cool. And, um, you know, the museum has a huge fashion and textile collection, which I had no idea idea about. It was actually founded, or at least the foundational aspects were created by fashion historian Francois Boucher, who wrote this incredible book, 20,000 Years of Fashion. Standard text. And apparently created this fashion textile collection in 1948, and it was his collection that would prove the uh, basis for the MAD collection. So, so cool. They have over 150,000 pieces, I think from the third century to the present. Um, Something that was also really cool is they had a history of photography exhibition. Apparently, their collection includes over 350,000 photographs, and they had a whole fashion section, which was awesome. Before we all went in, we gave a little brief history of modern fashion photography, and then also talking about, you know, Poiré's significance, the Edward Steichen photographs from 1911, et cetera. But my favorite part of that whole exhibition was that Paul Poirier's, one of his bustle gowns from the 1920s was on view in a photograph. I've only ever seen it illustrated, and it's so often referenced in like the historical narrative about how he was kind of out of touch, whatever, in the 1920s. But I'm like, no, this man is like revisioning the bustle for the 20th century, as we know so many other people would do in his yeah. footsteps. Yeah.
1: Elsa Schiaparelli did it in 1939, right before the war broke out. So yeah. It comes back again and again and again. Um, also, too, speaking of fashion designers themselves, can we just talk about the fact that Jeanne Lavans bathroom? is actually at the Musée Dessert Decorative.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. Complete <laughs> with <laughs> leopard-printed toilet seats, which I, which I just, I mean, that was the first thing I saw before I even realized it was Lan Van's actual bathroom. Her bedroom's there as well. And it's a super interesting story. And I guess when her daughter passed away, her husband uh, preserved before uh, Lan Van's house was, um, I guess it was taken down. It was bulldozed at some point, maybe in like the 60s. He preserved his wife's mother's bedroom, her sitting room, and then the bathroom. And they're now recreated in this museum. so unexpected. And what's so lovely about her bedroom is it's in her signature lawn band blue, and it's covered in daisies, which is, of course, what her daughter, Marguerite, stands for daisies. So just a beautiful homage to her daughter, as she did throughout her, you know, design career. So many homages to her daughter. So it was a very lovely treat. Yes, it was, for sure. And that is also um, part of a permanent exhibition.
1: Because, you know, the the museum itself has a lot of those kind of, like, room recreations. Um, oh, there was also the courtesan's bedroom, which oh, that was, was also so very cool, cool. Yeah. as well. And speaking of courtesans, that pertains to the next day when we went to Versailles, <laughs> which was amazing. And I have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to let Cass, you share your thoughts first.
0: Yeah, I mean, we had such a wonderful time at Versailles. Uh, We arrived, we did a little lecture, which may or may not become a podcast episode as we talked to you about court etiquette at Versailles. It's such a beautiful, overwhelmingly large palace. 2,300 rooms to be specific. Yes, we did not spend much time there and we encouraged our fellow travelers not to as well. I mean, obviously, if you've never been to Versailles, you need to go through and enjoy the sheer magnificence That is the hall of mirrors and to see Marie Antoinette's bedroom with all the flowers and all the, you know, feathers at the top of the bed. I mean, it's incredible. But what we did that was so lovely, April, is you and I walked and a lot of us walked through the gardens, which was just incredible. We saw that wonderful fountain show, which was completely Mm -hmm. unexpected. And yeah, and then we walked all the way back to the Grand Canal where we picnicked leisurely um, as one would have in the 18th century. So that was very, very much a treat. Um, And I'll let you talk about the Queen's Hamlet, perhaps, if you would like.
1: Yes. So when Cass was saying earlier that we didn't spend much time, what we're talking specifically about was the main royal palace, the really, really big palace. So I guess, like, the main takeaway, because I have now been to Versailles several times. Me too. (laughs) um, (laughs) And the first time I went, I didn't realize that all this other stuff was at the palace. So, like, there's the main palace. And the first time I went there, I only went there. And then the gardens that were, like, kind of, like, immediately behind it but what I would encourage everyone to do is to keep going because there is this whole other world that if you don't keep exploring, you don't know exists. Like the gardens themselves that Cass was just referencing with the with the water shows. You know, some of the fountains will be on if you keep going back further, and they they're set to music. And there's all these little hidden like features called baskets back there as well that might have a little amphitheater or a garden to the goddess Diana. And you could just keep going on and on and on. But after the picnic, where we did a little lecture on Marie Antoinette, we actually went to Petit Trianon. And Petit Trianon is Marie Antoinette's kind of country getaway. It's not really in the country. It's on the
0: site of the grounds of Versailles. It feels like it's on in the country though. That's how divorced it is from like all of, and I, we have to say too, there's nobody back here. Like there's people back there, but they're compared to the Grand Palace, the big Versailles, there's nobody at the Petit Trianon or the Queen's Hamlet comparatively.
1: Yeah and and that's because it is a 35 minute walk from the main palace or a train ride there is a little tram too so Petite Trianon was really kind of her getaway where she hung out privately with her entourage and if you've heard our Rose Bertin episode you know it's where she was wearing her chemise à la reine you know this chemise en gall, this like Everything was less formal because she was really over the etiquette and and the strict court life at court at the main palace. So she lived out here with a lot of her friends and they even constructed like a whole other little hamlet in addition to her petite Trianon palace that cast you are the one that took me there because I had never been there before.
0: Yeah, it's really, really special. My sister and I, who was actually on this trip with us again, um, but we went a couple years ago and uh, walked back there for the very first time and we're just awestruck, like completely floored. Because if you don't know about it, you have no clue what to expect. And it's basically she recreated a normal village of an everyday person right so like you're not royalty you're living in the country what would your house and this little village look like well it would have a little lighthouse and a little lake right and it would have a moat and it would have um it would have animals there's pigs and Bunnies and thatched-roofed houses, and there's gardeners that live out there and are actively working on the gardens. I mean, I don't know if they actually live out there, but that's the idea, right? Is that you're Mm -hmm. just in this completely... And to get there, it's so magical to walk there, right? You're, like, walking through all these, like, windy pathways. They're covered with the trees, and it's just such a beautiful way to get away and out into the country, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And then the thing is, is like once we went to the Hamlet, we kind of like circled back to the like the main structure of Petit Trianon. And we just discovered this whole other part of Petit that Trianon that I had never
0: <laughs> been to. And that was actually behind the Petit Trianon. So I've been in the Petit Trianon, but I'd never been behind in those gardens, which was such a treat. Thank you to Valerie Steele for encouraging me to find the teeny tiny little jewel
1: box opera house that is separate from Petit Trianon that's back there in those gardens that she had built. And there's all these little like little separate structures that were just for parties or this or that. And I I mean, next time I go to Versailles and I will go back, I think it'll be my sixth time the next time I go back, I'm just going to head straight to the to the bigger gardens outside the main palace and then head back over to Petit Trianon and keep exploring back there. So,
0: yeah, and the Grand Trianon is back there too, which is, you know, there's the Petit Trianon, then there's there's a bigger house, but still not even remotely close to Versailles. But that is also just there's not that many people there. So again, you get to walk through these these rooms that are decorated. They have, you know, they have furniture in them and imagine what it would have been like to live there. I mean, it's such an epic place, epic experience. And I will say, April, perhaps the next time we go back, it'll be to the Fête Gallant, which is the annual yes. costume party that they have, <laughs> I think, once or twice a year. It's the only time you can go to Versailles in historical costume. Otherwise, you have to wear contemporary clothing Um, that's literally part of their rules but it's this one night once a year where it's just like this incredible party all these people in 18th century costuming essentially so you really do get to imagine just what it might have been like during the day of Marie Antoinette
1: that's definitely going to be like a kind of a once in a lifetime experience type thing
0: yeah, especially because we'll have to figure out how to get dressed all la 18th century. But that <laughs> and the hair, I mean, that's the most fun, I think, to get your hair done. Um, but yeah, that was just an incredibly epic part of our trip. And I think it really was for our listeners who attended as well.
1: Yeah, and and just a shout out to the company that did our picnic because that was the most fabulous picnic I have ever been on in my life. The food was phenomenal. Quiche. We had salads. We had charcuterie boards. We had cheeses, some of the best cheeses I've ever had. I mean, the whole thing was just magical. We're, we're right by that really big
0: lake that's behind um, the Grand Versailles. Canal. Yeah, and there's like swans swimming by, etc. And you can rent boats. And something that was really cool. The first week we were there is a. I think there was about 10 women on horses because the Royal Horse Stables reopened a couple of years ago. And so this whole group of women on the horses um, came by. So it was just so, so cool. So if you are heading to Versailles in the near future or in the future, just be sure and budget your day. Because we were there from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and did not even get remotely Uh -uh. close. To seeing it all. Yeah, and, and venture past the main palace because honestly, I think that's where the treasures really are. Yeah, absolutely. The next day was our free day and April and I went to a museum that was actually a perfect companion to Versailles. April and I, if you had been following us through that exhibition, you would have just heard us whispering to each other, calling to each other, you have to come here, come here, you have to check this out. (laughs) Like giddy school children who had found, you know, the candy shop because the Musée Carnavalet, Paris' official museum, the museum of the city, is a must-see.
1: Yes, and and the thing is, is the reason why we didn't take our uh, travelers to Musée Carnavalet was the fact that it has been closed for five years for this massive, massive, massive renovation. And it reopened literally like two weeks before yeah. our trip. And there was no way of us knowing that it was actually going to reopen at that moment and specifically because of COVID. But the section that Cass and I were freaking out about basically was their entire area that is the history of the French Revolution. And what is in there is jaw-dropping. Not only some of the really famous paintings of the Enquillable and reviews that Um, we have already done an episode and covered and have appeared on our Instagram feed, but also things like a
0: shoe that belonged to Marie Antoinette and one of her chemises that she wore in prison. Yeah. And that chemise was just insane. I think April and I were just in shock, honestly, because I had no idea that that existed. And then to learn Mm -hmm. about the history, they would not let her embroider her initials on it. So they actually, like the initials that appear on it, I believe were, was whoever was like in charge of watching her essentially or guarding her cell. I can't exactly remember, but that was just incredible. And then they have like all those relics of the royal family as well, which is, you know, it's all very sad. Obviously, it's a very, very dark subject, but it's pretty incredible to see it because it's a chronological exhibition, right? You start at the beginning, you learn all about the history and there's a Phrygian bonnet in there, the red bonnet, which was really cool to see. I mean, is there anything else you want to talk about before we move on to my next favorite part in that museum? Um, well, I just—I would have a request, that,
1: or that I would like to request from the Musée Carnavalet. In the French Revolution section, there is a pair of earrings that are little guillotines. That I think they don't date to that time period; they date a little bit later to the 19th century. But I'm pretty sure in the past that they used to sell reproductions of those earrings in the gift shop. It's so dark. And so <laughs> I was all on board. I'm like, I'm going to go get this guillotine
0: earrings at gift shop. They did not sell them. Oh those. my gosh, that's so dark. I love it. But if you did sell them, I'd buy them. <laughs> so moving out of that section, I was about halted in my tracks again because the Madame Racamier portrait by Francois Girard is there. And so early 19th century portrait, very famous. She's in, she appears in her Empire gown, you know, that white chemise gown of the early 19th century with that yellow cashmere shawl. I mean, I audibly gasped when I saw that. I did too. Yeah, it was so, so incredible. And then there's also like Proust's bedroom is there, which is, mm-hmm. was super unexpected. And one of his jackets is in there. It was really just one treasure after another. So, highly, highly recommend this museum.
1: Yes. And if you've been before, go and check it out again. Because, again, they just went through a multi-million dollar renovation. And the museum is really beautiful now.
0: Not that it wasn't before. Yeah. One more thing. The Fouquet, one of the early 20th century Art Nouveau jeweler extraordinaire's shop front is in there. Not even just the shop front. The actual store interior as well. So, definitely check it out.
1: Yeah, it's like the sublime example of Art Nouveau architecture.
0: Yes, anything you could possibly imagine. It's like the jewelry translated into architecture or vice versa. Absolutely wonderful.
1: And speaking of anything that you can imagine... The next day, uh, we had another jam-packed day, but we started off our morning at Les Pouces, which is the Paris flea market, which is technically not at all located in Paris, but more so like a northern suburb called Saint-Ouane. Owen. is only open on the weekends. So if you're visiting Paris, please know that because I have tried to go to Les Pouces several times before. (laughs) And for whatever reason, like when I was trying to go, wasn't the weekend. They weren't open. We're not going to go into a ton of detail about our shopping at La uh right now, only because, because it is the world's largest flea market. We're actually going to do a separate episode and give you some, perhaps some, some insider tips about Les Pousses, what you might find there, and where to find it.
0: And what we found there, because we found some treasures, let me tell <laughs> you. <laughs> and then from Le Pousses, we actually went to, we ended our entire dressed fashion history tour at the Yves Saint Laurent Museum with the exhibition Yves Saint Laurent, Behind the Scenes of Haute Couture in Lyon. And actually, the museum is at the site of the former Haute Couture house, where YSL operated his business for many, many decades before retiring in the early 2000s. It's a really incredible exhibition. It's a celebration of the 40-plus year relationship between Yves Saint Laurent and the most eminent Lyon textile houses. So there's actually seven Lyon-based firms that are featured um, and that he really worked closely with throughout his career to create his masterpieces. So it's this really mutually inclusive relationship. April, did you have a favorite part of the exhibition? Because I certainly know mine. I think maybe we might share the
1: same thing. So just a little pro tip, because if you go into uh, Musee YSL, you know, there's like, you kind of go up some steps and then you're at this ground floor, which they have two separate exhibition spaces. And if you don't know to keep going up the stairs to the other floors, you might kind of miss some things. So please know that that kind of like opening floor with the two exhibition spaces is not the entire museum. Just keep going up that back staircase. And up there, we found some additional video works. And then on the top floor, there was another exhibition space that had some unbelievably beautiful evening gowns that were definitely threaded through with lyrics or metallics. So that kind of little grouping was one of my favorite. They're incredibly opulent, these textiles. But just around the corner from that, you actually get to go into YSL's office.
0: Oh, and it's maintained as it would have been, right? It's this light, you're in this dark exhibition space, and then you walk into this window-lined office that's just completely bright and warm and welcoming. And basically, it's been preserved as it would have been when he worked there. It was very moving, actually, and it was very lovely to be there. And see, like, for instance, he has... All of his books, you know, it's he has this huge bookcase, a wall of books, right? And there's so many, like, fashion history and art reference books that he used throughout his career. That was super, super special. And then one of my other favorite parts actually was very unexpected. And it was the paper dolls that he created before he was an haute couturier. Oh, yes. It's basically how they start the exhibition and... Basically, the wall text says between 1953 and 54, Yves Saint Laurent created the haute couture house of his dreams. This is- before he was a couturier. So
1: he was a teenager still
0: at this point. He called it Yves Mathieu Saint Laurent Haute Couture Place Vendôme. And he cut out the silhouettes of his favorite models from his mother's magazines. And then he designed entire wardrobes for them. And it's so incredible. They have some of those pieces. So it's kind of those behind-the-scenes elements that a place like an archive dedicated exclusively to one designer is able to provide you with these elements that other... Exhibitions or exhibition spaces just aren't going to be able to bring that level of intimacy to the exhibition. And I really, really loved that part.
1: Yes, 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 yes. And so we concluded our trip that evening with a really wonderful dinner at one of the most beautiful Art Nouveau restaurants still operating in Paris. And we had lots of wine and lots of courses, and the food just kept coming. Absolutely,
0: yes. Thank you so much to the wonderful staff at Brasserie Millard, which was just a transformative or transportive experience. It's literally like we were back in the early 20th century. The tiled mosaics, um, the incredible ceilings—it was so beautiful. We had a wonderful four-course meal, and yeah, it was a really, really special way to conclude what had really been just an unforgettable trip to Paris in more ways than one.
1: And made unforgettable not just because of everything that we saw, but everybody that we got to hang out with. And we just want to give a huge shout out to all of our travelers on the trip. Uh, trip one, including Robin, Tom, Charday, Sophia, Gigi, Victoria, Chloe, Julie, Allison, Suzanne, Andrew, Melissa, Catherine, Heidi, Lauren,
0: Taryn, Julia, and Sam. And week two, Jennifer, Jen, Chris. Susan, Erin, Sally, Mary, Vivian, Sarah, Judy, Carrie, Heather, Stephanie, Mariah, Scott, Brenda Lee, Sean, and Ali. Thank you all so much for joining us. And of course, extra special thanks to Laura for making this all possible. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider what you will wear on your future trip to Paris next time you get dressed.
1: And if you all are interested perhaps in future trips similar to this, perhaps to Paris, perhaps to a completely different destination, send us a DM, send us an email. We would like to keep doing
0: some of these things here and there, perhaps long weekends, but let us know if you're interested. Yeah, and also we will put links to our show notes to many of the places we mentioned, and hopefully we've provided you with a guide for your next uh, future trip to Paris. And also, of course, special shout out to Casey Pagram, our sound editor extraordinaire, producer extraordinaire, who gave us so many wonderful recommendations. Thank you, Casey. Yes. And also, of
1: course, thank you as always to Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon.
0: Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.